Amen. Good morning, church. I'm going to be reading this morning from Luke as we continue through our series. The passage we're going to be in is Luke 3, 10 through 14, but I'm going to back up to verse 7 to give us context, pulling from a little bit of Chris's sermon last week. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Beginning in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, speaking of John the Baptist, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. That concludes the reading for this morning. You all can be seated. Let me pray for us as we go to the word. Lord, I pray that this morning your word would fall on humble and hungry hearts, hearts that thirst for righteousness and will be joyfully satisfied this morning by receiving your word in faith. Please let your word continue to transform us day by day as we let it dwell among us richly. As we read from your psalm this morning, Lord, we know that whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Lord, we pray that it would be pleasing to you to give us faith to hear your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, uh, Pastor Chris talked to us about verses 7 through 10 that we just read. John, in true prophetic fashion, minced no words with the crowds who came to him, calling even the Jews the brood of snakes. So whether Jew or Gentile, John gave a hard and truthful word that the crowds needed to hear. As Chris mentioned, these were examples of how John was preaching the crowds. These were not one-off examples of this one time the, John the Baptist said this one, one thing. You see the language chosen by the NASB for this passage says things like, he was saying to the crowds, and he would answer and say to them. It was an ongoing thing that he would teach. And this preaching, glory to God, broke the hearts of many of his listeners. Starting in verse 10, we see that people were being convicted to the heart by John's preaching, were wanting to be baptized as a sign of their repentance, and then they were essentially asking John, how then shall we live? This is an example of godly true repentance, is it not? In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends the church in Corinth for this very thing, saying, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieves you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and also what eagerness to clear yourselves. And this is what we see in this crowd, an eagerness to clear themselves, to be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance as John commands. And true repentance does that. A true godly grief leaves you feeling grieved, but also desiring to make restitution, to bring healing, to restore relationship, especially with God, to right the wrongs and become a new person, to walk in a new way. Worldly grief brings a sorrow, but then in pride never turns to God to be reconciled or confesses to others but stays in the dark and hides in the shadows, slowly bringing death. Well, glory to God, it was not the case with these hearers of John's words. So these three teachings of John, I think, are quite powerful and worth spending time on because of that situation. John is speaking to people who are convicted, humbled by their sin, and are eagerly listening for guidance and instruction on how to walk in a new way of life. And this is what John is going to teach them. They have been told by him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and they eagerly want to do that. As Chris taught us last week, our faith is not in our repentance or in the fruit that we bear because of repentance, but true repentance and faith that does not produce good works is a dead faith and a hollow repentance, as James 2 reminds us. So John, in manner that we should imitate, teaches the crowds. He is not a traveling evangelist who proclaims the need for repentance and then leaves his new converts with no discipleship. He gives them instructions on how to walk in a new way of life. Very practical instruction. So how does this prophet of God tell them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? So this sermon is going to be very broadly divided into two sections. The first section is going to be on generosity which covers John's first exhortation to the crowds. The second section is going to focus on godly vocation, which covers the second and third exhortations from John. So let's go and just focus first on the first instruction that, God, that John gave to the crowd. The one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none, and the one who has food is to do likewise. So this first exhortation is to the crowd in general, not to any particular group of people. His first instruction is to show deep love and generosity towards your neighbor by sharing with him to meet his needs out of your own possessions. The greatest command is to love God and then love, God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And what better way to do this than to give to them things to meet their most fundamental needs, to be fed and clothed. Even if by doing so, you may reduce your own long-term prospects of being fed and clothed. This command also shows a foundational change in thinking and looking at life that is to mark followers of Christ. And that is the change from being a self-focused, selfish person to one who is selfless and outward-looking. All men by nature seek after their own good, their own self-preservation, their own prosperity, and these are not inherently bad pursuits. There is nothing wrong with desiring your own prosperity and praying for it. But the second greatest commandment teaches us that we are to be just as concerned about our neighbor's well-being just as we are our own. 
So this command would have landed a little bit differently on the crowd of that day. To us, buying someone food and clothing is as simple as a trip to Walmart. We have an abundance of quantity of these things, if not an abundance of quality. In those days, food spoiled quickly, was not nearly in as much abundance. Clothes were made by hand and took lots of time to make. Food and clothing were far more precious commodities in those days. Sharing them with someone was not a small token of a gift. It would be a deep blessing to the recipient and a costly one from the giver. So on generosity, I have several points that I want to expound on. The first one being that lavish generosity befits those who have been adopted by a God who has been lavishly generous with them. My favorite verse from a City of Light song reads, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Saying that there is nothing more precious and costly than the Son that the Father could have given us. Those of us in Christ have already found or been given the treasure hidden in the field and the most precious pearl that people would sell all to find. We are already rich beyond our knowing because we have Christ. You have been redeemed through the costly gift of Christ's blood. In John 1 it says, Out of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And beyond this wealth we already possess, what is yet to come? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 or 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, set your hope completely, to be, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you hear how he said the grace to be brought to you? So do you already have a soul that exults in the grace God has given you in Christ? Do you know that there is further grace yet to be revealed to you? The saint with the greatest faith on this earth, whose soul so fully grasps how blessed he is in Christ, still has more grace to be revealed to him on the day of Christ. Do you know how blessed you have been through no merit of your own and even in spite of your demerits? If so, it will show in your equally free generosity towards others. If riches have been given to you so freely, you will be inclined to be richly generous yourself. A related question to ask, seeing the character of God, is do you know the joy of generosity as shown by God? Because God is God. No one compels or commands his generosity. He chooses to do it out of his joy in it. He is generous because being generous is joyful. Does your heart know the genuine truth that it is more blessed to give than to receive? Like, do you actually know that at like a reflexive gut level where you see an opportunity to meet someone's need and you get excited about it because your eye of faith causes you to see your own blessing in someone else's lack? It is a blessed thing and it is a privilege to be able to meet someone else's need. We can learn much from considering what God chooses to do out of his own freedom. The second point is that generosity shows faith 
in a God who provides. True faith is not shown by belief in God. As James reminds us, even the demons believe and they shudder. Abraham was considered righteous because he believed God. When God spoke, Abraham took him at his word, and his faith was shown in the actions that he took that displayed his trust. As James also reminds us, faith that does not produce works is a dead faith. So, child of God, do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? Philippians 4.19 Do you believe that we should not be anxious about the things we will eat or drink or wear? Because our heavenly Father knows we need these things. Matthew 6.25-32 Do you believe that if you give, it will be given to you? A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. Luke 6.38 Do you believe that the Lord God is a sun and a shield, that he bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? Psalm 84.11 Or conversely, the opposite side of that, are you behaving and thinking in your heart like Gentiles, who eagerly or anxiously or frantically seek after these things? with your thoughts and heart preoccupied with them because you don't trust God in the manner Jesus was describing? Or are you behaving like the rich man Jesus spoke about who built new barns for himself to store up all his excess so that he could relax and enjoy himself instead of being rich towards God? Both of those are forms of trusting in wealth instead of trusting in God. On the one hand, you may be someone who is anxiously, frantically seeking after the things that you need because you don't have them, but you find peace and security when you have them instead of finding peace and security in God. On the other hand, you may have those things and you store them up because you want to store up all those things that you find security and confidence in. Either way, both of those are a form of trusting in wealth and finding your security and your blessing in things rather than God. Again, things are not bad in of themselves, but where is your trust? Where is your hope? So now Paul, I think, in 2 Corinthians 8 gives us a very helpful picture of the balance that should be achieved in the body of Christ when it comes to generosity. He is commending the Corinthian church to model another church in their generosity. He says this, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So the purpose of giving is not for you to be impoverished and lacking in what you need, because then you're just another person who needs generosity extended to them, and we've not solved any of our problems. The point is that where you have abundance, bless others with it. Do not hoard it. Make sure your brothers and sisters have no lack. Additionally, on the other side, we can't hold on to pride towards our brothers and sisters and hide when we have lack, because then how will we fulfill this commandment? If you are in need, make it known and ask for prayer so that God can answer your prayers for provision through those around you. There's always going to be those who have abundance to supply other people's need, and there's always going to be the people who have need. 
And so if we don't communicate about those things, we cannot bless one another. So in humility, let's be open about our needs and where we're at. And also praise the Lord when we have abundance because others also know that. <clears throat> so uh, generosity shows faith in a God who has promised to provide for us and will provide for us. Point number three is that generosity should start in the home and faith community and extend outwards. So why do I say this? Generosity is a virtue, and like all virtues, it should be extended to all people we encounter, no matter our closeness to them. The commands in Scripture to be benevolent and generous to all are clear. But consider the needy outside of our families or faith communities. Someone you might see at CARM or living at the Salvation Army, or perhaps even just someone who's forced to live on government welfare. How many of the people there are there because they were failed first by their parents, or failed by their own children if they are elderly? Or then after their immediate family, why is their extended family not helping them? And then going further out, they don't have a strong, generous community around them to support them. Those people are having to turn to strangers to get the help they need because there is no one near to provide it. It is with great wisdom that Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As an analogy, think of a polluted wetland. Let's say that this wetland is polluted by a sewage pipe that just empties into it. To fix this problem, what should our first priority be? To clean up the mess in the wetland or to turn the pipe off? We want to turn the pipe off first. The sewage pipe is the prevalence of family and community breakdown in Western culture. And the mess it is creating is broken people and society. So we as the church should see the wisdom of treating the disease before the symptom. By creating strong families and communities... And through our generosity among ourselves, we stop the flow of neediness and brokenness. And then those strong communities are able to be charitable to the poor and needy outside the community out of our strength and abundance. The example of the early church is wonderful, as Acts 4, 32-35 tells us. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had any need. A church behaving in this way fulfills the truth that they will know that we are Christians by the love we have one for another. We want our church to be a community of people that makes outsiders see it and long in their hearts to be a part of something so special. When outsiders see a community where people are holding all things in common and you can't tell who the poor and needy are because no one has any lack, it brings glory to the God who has so structured his church in that way. So for all of these reasons, generosity starts here. It starts among us, it starts in your families, and it ripples outward from there. A related point is that a lack of a generous spirit in an individual or in a church is a cause for great concern and should be addressed immediately. There is no escaping how this virtue is tied 
to true faith and true religion in the scriptures. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A church that is not generous to those in need, starting with their own members, is showing concerning signs of not having a living faith. I am grateful to be able to testify to many large and costly acts of generosity that have taken place in this church since its inception. And I'm also grateful to see the small tokens of generosity exchanged every week between members through hospitality, the giving of time, and sharing of resources. So while I do give this general warning, I have not seen this church in immediate need of it. Another point related to the passage about the early church from Acts that happens to be relevant to our current day is do not let the pagan teachings of socialism and communism twist the words of our God. John here is commanding generosity, a heart that says, I want to bless others out of my abundance. Communism is wicked in many ways, but here specifically it fails. It is a political philosophy that justifies being eaten up with covetousness over what your neighbor has, instead of being concerned about blessing your neighbor. Adherents of this philosophy often take this passage in Acts about the early church and say, see, from the beginning, the church was supposed to be a communist utopia with no private property, all things held in common. We are just trying to realize that Christian vision. Historically, you are generally forced to agree with this glorious vision as a rifle is pointed at you. In response, I would say, so you think the early church was a community of people eaten up with envy like you are? You think the early church was beautiful and grew by leaps and bounds because everyone was getting together and coveting everyone else? You are twisting God's commands for generosity to justify your own covetous heart. You need to go back to John's previous teaching that every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire and reckon with that. Be concerned for yourself, not about how others are spending their resources. The last point I would like to make is some of the practical benefits of generosity. The commands of God are not just nice, ethereal things. They have practical benefits for his people when we follow them. The first practical benefit is community strength. If our families are strong because of the generosity of shared resources, it provides great resiliency. Think about how this church's generosity has allowed for men to risk starting their own businesses. Would this have happened in every case if the men in this community didn't know that they had a blessed and loving safety net of believers that would joyfully provide and care for their families if everything went terribly wrong? People who think they are alone and have no external support, live their lives very conservatively, removing risk-taking as an option, because if they fail, no one will catch them. The result of that is that good risks and worthy chances aren't taken, and the fruitful potential of a man and his family is hindered. 
That doesn't mean that our covenant members should live recklessly, but there is freedom to take wise, calculated risks that will ultimately lead to far greater fruitfulness because of the security that is present in a community like ours. So the presence of generosity does make a community strong, but it also raises the ceiling of how fruitful the community can ultimately be because of the ability and freedom to take wisely considered risk. The second practical benefit is eternal blessings. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Along with that, the conclusion of the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16 is, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus does not avoid appealing to our own self-interest when it comes to his teachings. Obeying him is always in our own self-interest. It is in your own eternal interest to be a generous person. Lay up for yourself as much treasure for eternity as you can. Why would you not? So all of that, you could write a book or two or three about the topic of generosity, but hopefully that will give us enough content to continue to chew on and think about during the week as we fellowship together. So I'd like to kind of put a bow on the topic of generosity and move on to the next couple of things that John talks about that have to do with godly vocation. Remember, these are things that he taught often. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So these two teachings have, um, each have individual things that I want to pull out, but they also have some big overlapping points and concepts. And so we're going to start with the overlapping concepts. The big one being the glory of godly vocation. This first point, like I said, is still teaching for the, the, for the whole crowd um, when it comes to the glory of godly vocation. He does, is speaking to tax collectors and soldiers individually, but the concept of godly vocation is for everybody. Again, being pierced by the heart or to the heart by John's teaching and asking how to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John tells them <clears throat> to go back to their work and do it in a way pleasing to God. Keep living the life you were living and keep working the vocation you were working, but now do it in a way that honors and glorifies God. This is valuable for us to ponder for a few minutes and really think about. No doubt many of you are like me who used to read this and be very underwhelmed by it. I believe God's word is speaking to me today, and the reaction of my heart could be, is there not something more meaningful and significant I can do than just to make sure to do my job in a moral way? Because of my experience and the testimony of others, I believe that the reason we can have this reaction has to do with poor or underdeveloped theology of work the modern Western church generally possesses. I think to read John's teaching here correctly and for the full weight of its glory to land on us 
it is important to do some corrective work. After all, work was given to Adam in the garden in his sinless state. Work was a part of paradise before the fall. But we tend to act like the thorns and thistles that accompany our work since the fall are one and the same with the work itself. So I'm going to read an extensive section from an essay by Dorothy Sayers called Why Work? Sayers was a Christian author earlier in the 20th century, and she carried on a long-term friendship with C.S. Lewis and some of his companions. Her essay on this topic reminds me of C.S. of Lewis's levels of cultural discernment. I, it's well worth uh, taking an hour to read. I'm not going to read all of it, obviously, but well worth looking up later. She says this, I am persuaded that the reason why the churches are in so much difficulty about giving a lead in the economic sphere is because they are trying to fit a Christian standard of economics to a wholly false and pagan understanding of work. They're trying to fit a Christian standard of economics to a wholly false and pagan understanding of work. It is the business of the church to recognize that the secular vocation as such is sacred. Christian people, and particularly perhaps the Christian clergy, must get it firmly into their heads that when a man or woman is called to a particular job of secular work, that it is as true a vocation as though he or she were called to specifically religious work. It is not right for her to acquiesce in the notion that a man's life is divided into the time he spends on his work and the time he spends in serving God. He must be able to serve God in his work. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that, as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What use is all of that if in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. Yet, in her own buildings, in her own ecclesiastical art and music, in her hymns and prayers, in her sermons and in her little books of devotion, the church will tolerate or permit a pious intention to excuse work that is so ugly, so pretentious, so insincere and insipid, so bad as to shock and horrify any decent draftsman. So pause her for a second. I just want to insert. Surely we can all attest to being aware that Christian versions of things oftentimes, especially when it comes to art and entertainment, movies, music, etc., are often B-level productions at best. 
creations that only appeal to churchgoers because they happen to be free from sinful content and have some redeeming messages, while at the same time they are not particularly good, or how we tolerate shepherds and teachers in churches who are objectively poor at that job simply because they are very kind men or are really sincere in their intentions. So no one wants to call a spade a spade and just say, brother, you are not gifted in this. If the work itself is not considered sacred unto the Lord, then quality loses importance. Okay, back to what Sayers is saying. The church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. Forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church. That a painting must be well painted before it can be a good sacred picture. That work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. The apostles complained rightly when they said it was not proper that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation it is to prepare the meals beautifully might with equal justice protest it is not proper for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. The official church wastes time and energy and moreover commits sacrilege in demanding that secular workers should neglect their proper vocation in order to do Christian work, by which the church means ecclesiastical work. The only Christian work is good work well done. Let the church see to it that the workers are Christian people and do their work well as to God. Then all the work will be Christian work. So, end, end quote. What Sayers is saying is the type of job you are doing, be it preaching or farming or raising and homeschooling children or coding or mopping, does not make it Christian or pleasing to God. All work done well for God's glory is Christian work, is sacred work, and there are no gradations. And work is done well to the extent of your ability and resources. If you are learning a new trade, you know, good work, for you, looks very different than a 20-year veteran. If you are a new homeschool mom, your quality of work will be very different than that of a mom with three teenagers she has taught for a decade. But even if you are new at something, the glory of starting a new sacred task can rest on you. A close look at Colossians 3, 22 through 24 shows that this is clearly true. It says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you can go through that line of logic slowly. Bond servants or employees, whatever you do, whatever you do, work as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward for that work. You are serving the Lord Christ in that work. In whatever you do, know that one, you are serving the Lord Christ, and two, your work is going to be rewarded as work done unto the Lord. 
The Lord looks on any of your work done in faith as serving him and deserving of reward. So the principle that Sayers was hitting on of all work being sacred is very clear from this passage. Sayers is also reteaching a very reformed point when she says these things. In the Reformation, the reformers fought against the idea that there were two tiers of work, as the Roman Catholic Church did, where they elevated the priests and bishops and clergymen above men of other professions. Martin Luther pointed to how God's providential care for the world was done through the milkmaid milking the cows, and how God gives the wool, but it must be sheared and worked before his people can be clothed. How then is this not God's work if he promises to feed and clothe his people? And you can make this connection of God providing to man for any job under the sun. And practically, I would even encourage you to do that this week. Have you considered what aspects of society would falter and fall apart if you and people in your trade weren't doing the work that you're doing? If it wasn't valuable work, no one would be paying you for it. Okay? It's valuable work. It's important to society, whatever it is. Do you realize that you are obeying the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor just by doing good work? I'm not saying that heart motives aren't important, but we can emphasize them too much in this area. If you are someone who is just focused on doing good work, that is loving your neighbor and serving God, full stop. You are providing them good food, tough clothing, beautiful artwork, safe roads, well-built well furniture, quality services and products of any kind when you do good work. This is obeying the command to love one another. No need for pietistic excess concerning yourself if you have feelings of love in your heart toward your fellow man while you are working. Just do good work, and you are loving your neighbor. From there, it follows that work done poorly is doing a poor job of loving your neighbor. Furthermore, do you notice the deliberate use of the word calling in what Sayers was saying? And are you aware that this is what the word vocation actually means from the Latin root? Think vocal. It has to do with voice, a calling. And whose voice is calling, right? It's God's voice. If you believe in the providence of God over your circumstances, God has called you to where you are. And that is glorious. In Psalm 84, David writes, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. If Jesus returned today and set up a new tabernacle in which to receive visitors and asked you to come and wait outside the tabernacle to greet guests and show them in, you would be beside yourself with the weight of honor being bestowed upon you. And I have no doubt you would be the best doorman the world has ever seen. The honorable calling of God upon your work tomorrow morning is no less than that. Is this not God's world? The king's world. How can any work done on the king's land not be sacred work? Are you just tilling some field to plant crops or are you tilling the king's fields to feed the king's children? You don't have a job. You have a vocation. You have a calling. Even if you feel like you are still figuring out what you are made for, and I still feel like that some days, God's providence has you where you are. You have a calling and your work is sacred. Your faith-filled works advance God's purposes in this world. Look at Hebrews 11, the hall of, hall of faith, where the author, as Chris would say, Paul, goes through 
person after person who did these works of faith unto God. The common line among the heroes of the faith in this passage is their faith, not their vocations. The actual vocations of that cast of saints is incredibly varied. It was by their faith that they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, etc. It wasn't by or because of their giftings. Your specific vocation has little to do with how much godly fruit you will bear in your life. But we tend to think so, don't we? We tend to think that the pastors, evangelists, and missionaries are the ones who bear the most fruit for the kingdom and are seeking the highest reward. Anyone in any vocation can exercise their individual calling with the same faith shown by those in Hebrews 11. So in summary, man was made to work and God's purposes on this earth, God's purposes are fulfilled by our work just as it was in the garden. And if we can elevate our view appropriately of work to consider all work as sacred and as the work of God, we can take John the Baptist's commands here and hear them with the proper weight and glory. And isn't what he says beautifully simple? John is instructing the people to go back to their daily vocations, but now do them in a godly way, in a way that honors him. I think of Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John lays out no 10-year plan or complete life overhauls that these disciples, these new disciples, must complete to be doing what God wishes them to be doing. He says, go back to your life and live it in a new way. There are echoes here of Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And again later, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. And if we rightly view all vocations as sacred, as for and unto God, this makes perfect sense. Is God more pleased or more present with you in one vocation versus another? even as a professional pastor or evangelist or missionary? No. If God calls you to these things, you must obey him. But he might as well call you to any other vocational change, as much as one that gives you a church office. So if you are doing your work in faith unto the Lord and doing competent work that loves your neighbor, what else do the scriptures tell us about doing godly work, as John would commend here? As we've already read, Colossians 3.23 says to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are not to be a slack hand or a sluggard that makes you like smoke in the eyes of your employer, as the Proverbs describe. You are to work diligently, not only when you are being watched, but always, as Ephesians 6.6 commands. And generally, if you are working with the joy of the Lord, these characteristics will be more and more in your work. Pulling all of these things together, if I could summarize, hopefully helpfully, what godly work looks like, I would say that it is work filled with faith, done with appropriate competence, and done diligently. Work filled with faith, done with appropriate competence, and done diligently. If you have been doing your sacred work inappropriately, then repent and let the true glory of your work put a deep smile in your soul 
and on your face as you begin a new tomorrow. As we studied earlier, God is a generous God. And if your work is unto him, your, your reward will be absurdly disproportionate to what you do. The servant who was faithful with ten talents was given rule over ten cities. Even bringing a cup of cold water is not forgotten in God's records of rewards to be given to his children. There is no good work you do that is unseen by man that will not be lavishly rewarded in the age to come. Now, that being more big picture stuff, there are some specific principles I want to pull out of these commands from John. First, his statements make it clear that it is legitimate for Christians to work for a godless government or godless employer more generally. God, John is commending tax collectors and soldiers to go back to their work and do it well and righteously, and their work stands on its own merit before the Lord, regardless of their pagan employer, in this case, the Roman Empire. Now, this command of John is not a blank check. Obviously, the work you are doing must be capable of being righteous work. If one Roman soldier who heard John was responsible for crucifying Roman enemies, he would need to try to shift that job responsibility. And even if you are not sinning in your work directly, directly, being a janitor at a planned parenthood facility would generally mean that you are promoting evil in your work. So while Christians can and must work for pagans and in pagan settings, they must use wisdom to discern if they can truly work for the Lord where they are. Can the work meet that first criteria of being faith-filled, is how I think of it. And then more specifically, working for a government is a legitimate vocation. There are some public figures in our evangelical sphere that have kind of colored government work as nothing but you pilfering Egypt so you can have funds to go do real work outside of that or move on eventually to a real job. And this is not scriptural. It is true that there are many functions that have been captured by our government that are illegitimate, poorly done, wasteful, wicked, etc. But there are some functions that scripturally belong to the magistrate. And as a side note, how will we get godly governments if Christians are not a part of that world? Working in politics, in the military, the IRS, etc. We should pray for godly rulers and for the godly in government to be elevated higher, that we might live peaceful lives unto God under their rule. So now, going away from broad lessons from these two commands, I want to hone in on each one specifically, the tax collectors and the soldiers. If being a tax collector can be done unto the Lord, it implies that the government taxation is a legitimate function of government. And I'm certainly sympathetic to the argument that a large portion of the taxation that our current federal government imposes on us is illegitimate, including the unofficial tax they levy when they increase the money supply, causing inflation. There are also kinds of taxes, such as property taxes, that are illegitimate and even evil in of themselves because they destroy private property rights. In fact, we see in our own government its failure to follow this command of John. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Our government collects taxes far in excess of what the scriptures allow for and for purposes that scripturally do not fall under government authority. So they're being disobedient here. Our government needs to repent and obey the word. Nevertheless, governments are established by God, and as such, they have the right and authority from God to collect taxes 
to fund their God-given responsibilities. As an imperfect analogy, the church is a God-ordained institution, and it is funded to do its God-given work through tithes and offerings. Similarly, government, broadly speaking, is a God-ordained institution funded to do its God-given work through taxes. So speaking generally, governments have the right to collect taxes. They couldn't do their God-given responsibilities otherwise. But the manner in which they collect it, the quantity they collect, and what they spend it on may be and often is ungodly. So if you personally are an IRS or Tennessee Department of Finance employee, be a tax collector worthy of praise as far as it depends on you. So to John's second vocational command more specifically regarding soldiers, the establishment of a good godly military for the protection of its citizens is one proper function of government. And serving in the military is a legitimate vocation for a Christian man. And really, this should not be surprising. In the Old Testament nation of Israel, we see the example of all men, 20 years and older, being able to fight and counted as such. David, Jonathan, the mighty men, etc., are all praised in the Old Testament for their combat prowess. In Psalm 144, King David writes, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Godly and righteous soldiers, and I would actually include police officers in this definition, in this category, are a gift to a nation. Conversely, what a curse is it to a nation when its soldiers and police force wield their power and threaten in order to exhort money, intimidate and control others, or allow themselves to be bribed by wicked men to pervert justice and testify to lies. In Romans 13, the government is commanded by God to wield the sword to punish evildoers. And these evildoers could be wicked people inside the country that citizens must be protected from, or external wicked people that citizens must be protected from, including the armies of other wicked nations. It is a sound vocation for a man of God to pursue being part of such a military in godliness. Just as with tax collecting, you must use wisdom and sound judgment as to whether, given the state of your nation, you can serve militarily with godliness. I would personally have great pause about our nation currently. But as a category, not specific to any nation, the work of a soldier can be godly work. So, coming to an end... Uh, of this short section of scripture, we only did about four or five verses. I know this has been a lot of content. That's how I tend to speak, usually very densely. Uh, but I hope a lot of it has been uh, a blessing. I hope it's things that can be turned over in your mind and considered and thought about regarding these particular topics, regarding generosity, regarding how you approach your work, how you do your work, how you think about your work. I think a good summary thought to all of this is that we can rejoice in the simplicity of the commands God has given us through his prophet John on how to live a life pleasing to God. Again, are his commands not easy and light? 
Think of some other passages that reflect this truth. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Or in John 6, when the crowd asked Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus commends the simple faith of children that simply take God at his word. So the words I've spoken this morning, I hope, lead to that, to joy and gladness in the simple commands of God. Perhaps you realize, as I used to make the same mistake, that you've pursued things that seem more glorious and worthy of focus than focusing on the foundational thing of doing your work well. Maybe you see other things as more important. You can't wait to get done with your secular work so you can go to prayer or go to some more church-oriented specific function because you've forgotten that you have been doing God's work all day. If so, you can repent with me and, and change your mind about that. Stop doing what's right in your own eyes and instead believe the words of God that all of your work can be and is unto him. And finally, one of the hymns we sang this morning reminded me uh, as we sang about being complete and no work of mine can take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Work is such a good thing that we all probably know people who make an idol out of work. And while I want to commend the goodness of work, I also want to remind everyone that we have our identity in Christ. And work as a temptation to idolatry can draw us into wanting to put our identity in our work and trying to find significance and meaning in our work. And we do want to find that to a certain degree, but not to the ultimate degree. Our identity and worth and value is caught up in Christ. And we, no long, we can work in freedom because we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to overcome something. We don't have to earn salvation, as it were, through the work that we do day and out. So Christians can work in joy and in freedom knowing that their work has nothing to do with our justification. So, in summation, go and be generous, following your Father's example in his joyful generosity. Also, go and do the sacred, significant, meaning-filled work he has already set you to, with full enthusiasm and joy in the work itself, laughing at the thought that there is any work done unto the king and in the king's world, that could not be sacred. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us and instructs us, that gives us the narrow path to stay on. And yet in so many ways, your commands are easy and light and bring freedom to your children. I pray that you would help us to ponder and meditate on these things well, that it might bring more fruit and joy to our lives in the areas that we specifically touched on, that it would strengthen further this wonderful community of believers that are already so generous with one another. We thank you for all of your blessings and your word that guides us, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.